Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's been a while since we've done an up-to-date segment. So, Adam Bristol, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Andre. It's great to be back. So, what's been on your mind? I guess it's been a couple months since we've done this. So, do you have a little repository of things you want to talk about? I do. There's a few that I've been just waiting to talk to you about, and they're extremely different. One is more biology, and one is out there in the stars. Sweet. I love it. So, let's start with the biology. Okay. So, in late April, the state of Florida in consultation with the U.S. EPA, started a pilot program to test the use of genetically modified mosquitoes to reduce the Aedes aegypti uh, natural population in the Florida Keys. Oh, I'm liking this already. I am too. Of course, there's a lot of resistance to this idea. There's a general fear and uncertainty around genetically modified organisms, and we can talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. But this is a technology that has been trialed in other parts of the world with, I consider, pretty significant success. So it was trialed in Panama, and it was trialed most extensively in Brazil, areas where mosquito-borne illnesses are really a scourge on those populations. And as little as in 13 weeks, this genetically modified male Aedes aegypti, which then meets with females, renders them sterile and renders them, basically they die, the females, within little as 13 weeks, depending on the analysis, anywhere from 60 to 90% reduction in these Aedes aegypti out there in the population. So you can imagine that that is a pretty significant result. It is uh, superior and it probably comes at less human cost than, say, insecticides, the need for other types of uh, treatments for those people who get sick with mosquito-borne illnesses. Those would be things like West Nile virus, Zika, dengue fever, awful, awful things that we here in the U.S. generally don't have to contend with, but in other parts of the world are just really, really big problems. Yeah. And like, you know, if you ask people like Shannon Bennett, who's one of the chief scientists at the Cal Academy of Sciences and who studies virology and in particular, she studies mosquitoes. You know, she told me one time that mosquitoes are the deadliest animal to humans on the planet. <laughs> you know, and we had Mary Roach on the show a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, she also she sort of you know helped us understand that because, of, you know, there are far fewer people. There are actually very few people who are killed by bears, say, in the U.S., but people get these mosquito-borne diseases all the time. Indeed. You know, there are a lot of questions, of course, of is it safe? And that comes in really two flavors. Is it safe for humans? 
Is it safe for other animals in the ecosystem? And why the Florida Keys is an interesting situation is not just because it's here in the United States, but because Aedes aegypti is an invasive species, as it is for most of the world, in fact. And so you can have a little bit more comfort that, in fact, just as way we may be trying to whack some weeds that are, you know, not endemic to an area, Aedes aegypti is also an invasive species. And if you look across other uses of genetically modified crops as uses, you know, feed for cattle or livestock or, or chickens, you don't see any evidence of any genetic material then getting into those species purely through their consumption. Mm. And so the question would here was that, you know, would other bats or birds that eat those mosquitoes, would they somehow, you know, get some new non-natural, you know, genetic material into them? I think that risk seems to be seemingly impossible. Mm -hmm. And of course, with human beings, you, we don't see that blood feeding could lead to any gene transfer. Mosquitoes have been feeding on humans and other mammals and birds for hundreds of millions of years. And it's not like we detect significant amounts of mosquito DNA in us and other species, depending on the, you know, what the host and prey, you know, relationship is. So I'm super excited. I think the fears are far overblown. And in fact, the good that could come out of dramatically reducing these one or maybe two species of mosquitoes out of the 3,500 species of mosquitoes there are in the world, I'd say, look, humans inadvertently or sometimes with purpose exterminate certain species yeah. and the world adapts and life goes on. It feels to me that for something that causes so much human suffering for which we have very poor therapeutic options, and no prophylactic options or very few to be able to eradicate these species or dramatically reduce their prevalence seems like uh, sign me up for that. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that the the company Oxitec has reported that they're in conversations with Northern California oh, to run great. a pilot plant here too. And by the way, we can put this in the show notes. The EPA has posted a hundred and forty page FAQ and analysis huh. of these genetically modified mosquitoes. So if you're really interested and want to understand, has this been, you know, uh, has this been examined every which way from Friday? Look, should it be, continue to be studied and followed and make sure that every, absolutely, I'm not saying that we're, we're in the clear, but the risks have been thoroughly considered. Now it's time to start testing this technology. Yeah, I mean, especially as climate change, I, you know, in some parts of the world makes the mosquito problem so much worse. I know certainly my friends in Canada were talking about how it was a terrible summer for mosquitoes. And we even in Northern California, where we don't, I know there are mosquitoes because I went with Shannon Bennett in Golden Gate Park and caught some. We actually like put some really stinky socks as a kind of mosquito bait. It was pretty gross. But so I know they exist here, but very rarely do we actually see them in our homes or like even on our deck. But, you know, it seems like they were a little bit more frequent this summer. I mean... I mean, it's amazing because I did a little reading. You know, mosquito control is a Sisyphusian tax. Yeah. You know, because some of these species, any stagnant water yeah. can be a medium for, you know, egg laying and, and reproduction. And so something as small as just a small little puddle, uh, you know, a bottle cap or something could, you know, could be a conducive environment for that. And it's just not feasible for spraying and, and other types of mitigation strategies you just can't cover everything. Mm -hmm. And it would be really great to be able to harness molecular biology and genetics in a more precision approach versus a sledgehammer, which is broad use insecticides. 
So that's where we are close to the tiniest species on our Earth. So let's go out to the spheres. Well, what was the story that caught your eye that uh, takes us to the stars? Oh, now this one is cool. Next month at the end of November should be the launch of a Falcon 9 with what's called the DART mission or the double asteroid redirection test. Really, this is where NASA in collaboration with some academic scientists, most prominently at Johns Hopkins University, are testing the ability to redirect an asteroid off its orbit with the goal of a planetary defense system. It's a proof of concept for a planetary defense system. Wow, you were just talking about this morning, you were telling our son about the story of that woman who found like some space debris that <laughs> crashed into her bedroom. Yeah, well, well, I mean, there's no question that the the amount of very small meteorites, you know, that, that come crashing into Earth is staggering that we don't even appreciate for things burn up in the atmosphere. We see shooting stars, quote unquote. These things are inconsequential for the most part. Uh-huh. Although on occasion, they're rare, but they do happen. You can get a type of um, more major meteorite like in 2013, and I believe it was northeastern Russia. Right, yeah. Which was just this fairly dramatic yeah. you know, uh, object falling from the sky. And with that in mind, if you think of the history of how we think about mitigating that existential risk of a major meteorite impact, mm-hmm. I'm talking now of the size that could be you know, a kilometer in diameter, something mm. like Chicxulub, Mexico, at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, which was is now... I think, fairly well accepted to be a primary reason why the dinosaurs went extinct. We've often conceived of you know, mitigating that risk through sending up a nuclear weapon, blowing it up, and you know, can we sort of you know, save ourselves that way? It's uh-huh. like the movie Deep Impact or something uh-huh, like yeah. that. If you actually talk with the scientists, they think that's, that's all well and good. The problem with that, if it's sufficiently big enough, it's breaking up the asteroid into smaller and, and somewhat still dangerous bits. Hmm. So if you remember the old Atari 2600 video game of asteroids, you know, when you blew up the big one, they went into smaller and you blew up those, they went into smaller. So the idea is the planetary defense world, which is taking this much more seriously, has the eye of, has the idea of if we can simply redirect it, get it off its current orbit, redirect that orbit, that might be a a, a more viable strategy. Hmm. And so they've picked a very fascinating dual asteroid system, which is called Didymos. Okay. Didymos, which I believe is Greek for twins, uh-huh. because this is a main asteroid, Didymos A, which has orbiting around it a smaller, what's called a moonlet, which is this a little Didymos B. I think it's called, it's called Dimorphos, uh-huh. but it's orbiting around this other asteroid. And so what they're essentially doing is launching this, this object as a satellite which is going to race all the way and it's going to knock Didymos B off its trajectory. And because we have a very good idea of how this one asteroid orbits around the other, we can detect whether or not we actually deflected. Whether wow. what the proof of concept of can we actually deflect this period and the, or the, the path of the orbit. The other cool technology on this, which I think is neat, which kind of is perhaps secondary to the wow factor of just we're sending up the satellite to to basically intercept another asteroid is that, in my understanding, it's the first satellite to using these what are called ROSA or roll out solar arrays. So imagine a scroll that un- unfurls, and those are going to be the sat the solar arrays which are going to help 
power the propulsion system for about a year. Oh, wow. oh by the way, the anticipated impact is in September of 2022. I mean, it's staggering the level of precision that these types of you know NASA missions have. I find that to be incredible. I mean, I hope they're precise because I can just see, I get in my mind's eye, imagine all the ways this could go wrong. <laughs> oh, sure. We've had some amazing successes yeah. recently too. Like the, the recent Mars landing sure. was stunning yes. right? to be able to see that lander. But the recent Mars landing could not have resulted in an asteroid then being knocked in the wrong way and hitting Earth. No, but the fact that they were to land it safely and we could watch the whole thing with a delay, uh-huh. that was just pretty amazing. Yeah, it was. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. On that note, do you remember, of course, there's the, there's a delay of some time as the transmissions get from the satellite to Earth mm-hmm. and, and the observers. And obviously, this little moonlit, this little Didymos B is so tiny that the minute and a half or so delay would simply be too long for the actual control by our Earth scientists to control to make sure that's on the right path. So this is one of the first satellites that's going to have kind of like a self-driving automated navigation system in the last portion of it. Oh my God, we're so, sending you and I, Yeah, so space. you and I see these self-driving cars around San Francisco <laughs> all the time. And I'm thinking there's always this, you know, I always imagine, I know it's not always true, but I like to believe of the, the virtuous cycle of, you know, why do space exploration? Well, clearly this mission has a very practical purpose. Perhaps it's highly unlikely there'll be a major meteor Im- impact. But if there were, the stakes are so high yeah. that the expected value seems pretty good we should do right. it. But the point is, is even space exploration in and of itself over the decades, the quest to do these has yielded lots of compelling technologies that trickle then down into just everyday life. Uh-huh. The most obvious, you know, kind of canonical example is the pocket calculator. Right. You know, the pocket calculator, as I understand it, really was an offshoot of some of the computer science and engineering that happened in some of the earliest space missions. The point I want to make is 
it would be fascinating if some of the self-driving stuff now it's possible what nasa have doesn't hold a candle to what waymo and and cruise and all those other uh, are working with but i thought that was another interesting feature of this of this mission yeah i know it just reminds me of, of a malcolm gladwell podcast episode where he talks about waymo it's in revisionist history and one of the points he makes is that like Eventually, these cars are going to be so safe that you're going to be able to just like jaywalk in front of the car and it's going to stop for you. (laughs) And he was sort of testing this and playing around with the Waymo. And so like essentially it's a way of like taking back the streets. You know, I wonder if if there's some element of like, well, if we had all these self-driving satellites out there, it could like take back the sky. That's interesting. On jaywalking, though, what you just mentioned did this is up to date, but perhaps not quite in science, although you bring it into the self-driving car and it is. But just, I think it was last week, Governor Newsom vetoed a bill that would have made jaywalking like lessen the crime or basically do away with the crime of jaywalking, Huh? which I think a lot of people wanted to see, you know, right. because it seems like a little frivolous. Sure. You yeah. Know, you could imagine it it being abused. I don't want to go to jail for Of course, it, of course. <laughs> but fast forward 20 years, could you imagine a situation where jaywalking is actually a really important crime or really important behavior to regulate because it could be so disruptive yeah. to the transportation systems in, you know, yeah, if everything's self-driving and yeah. everyone yeah, if there was this it could rampant total gridlock. It could be total gridwalk. <laughs> yeah. There could be whole new forms of activism. Like forget Occupy Wall. When there's <laughs> Occupy Wall Street, they will literally occupy the street and no cars can go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's still a little bit far in the future. But right here in the present is a story that was published on September 29th in 2021 that I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, the first author is Nicole Wanyite. You know, we've, we've struggled to find ways to help humans visualize protein sort of properties and structure and, you know, s- sequences, right? Like that's kind of, it seems like it's something that is is important for us to know, but it's often hard for people to remember, to, you know, the the structure of a protein or or the sequences and sort of sort of kind of visualize it. Well, one way in which people have been or scientists have been trying to help humans visualize proteins is by using music. So what they've done in the past is they've created protein music using amino acid sequences, because there are some similarities between at least Western style music and protein sequences. That is that they are these series of repeated notes or, you know, amino acids, etc., that have a particular repetitive pattern or structure, right? So imagine that you could map, you know, the, the different elements of a protein onto a kind of musical scale could that help you sort of visualize or understand that protein's properties? But for a lot of people, the music that the that, that was created from these proteins was not very pleasant to listen to. It didn't sound like music. It wasn't great to listen to. And so like now if you're asked to over and over and over again, listen to something that eh, really doesn't isn't aesthetically pleasing, that maybe defeats the purpose, right? You're not, you're not going to be motivated to listen to it. So this group actually took a piece by Chopin, the fantasy impromptu in C-sharp minor, um, which is one of Chopin's most popular and most performed works. And Chopin is, you know, in terms of classical music, one of the most popular composers. You know, you probably, even without knowing it, you know, there are Chopin etudes that would be familiar to you most likely. 
just because they're played, you know, in all kinds of settings. So they took this one piece and they analyzed it and found that it also has a balanced structure. And then they used it to kind of inform the composition of these amino acid property music pieces. So they took 18 proteins and then they chose them for music generation. These are proteins that are responsible for all kinds of things, human in, in emotions and cognition, sensation or performance. And they chose them specifically because they felt that they conform to some of the themes of the fantasy impromptu music. And then they used a Python code to convert each sequence into a file based on the musical feature that kind of best matched the kind of structure of the protein. And then they they created this music. <laughs> and what they found was that, indeed, people at least rated <laughs> this protein-composed music as being more musical and being more aesthetically pleasing. It's an interesting idea, and I thought it was going in a different direction because we've had Oh, is it Alpha Mind or Go Mind or one of these amazing, uh-huh. you know, AI deep learning systems work on the problem of protein folding? Uh huh. And I thought what you're going to go is that if we ascribe a musical note or tone to all the different amino acids, and then we start playing them, could a different part of our cognition start to reveal patterns that could map onto something like a secondary structure of folding? Like, would we start to see patterns where it's more difficult to tap into it with, for lack of a better term, you know, like left brain where we're sort of and, and, and tap into a more of a musical aesthetic that may find chords or something about the, the secondary and tertiary structure of a protein based on its amino acid se- sequence, again, with the goal of creating insights into how can we predict folding. Didn't sound like they were interested in that at all. Well, I mean, I think maybe they're thinking about that as potentially something, you know, as an application for the future. I think at first, in in this case, they just wanted to see whether, whether, you know, it's almost like a methods paper uh, of how you might, um, you know, the the, the title of the paper is Protein Music of Enhanced Musicality Mm. by Music Style Guided Exploration of Diverse Amino Acid Properties. So I think what you're suggesting is kind of the goal is like, can we actually understand diverse amino acid properties by creating music from the sort of these features of the proteins and does it help when that music is actually nice to listen to yeah the nice to listen to part and again i'm not volunteering for this that kind of concerned me less because humans are incredibly good at pattern recognition humans are incredibly good at probabilistic inferences Mm -hmm. on complex data sets even in a way they can't even articulate and so even if it were not, it was totally atonal crap, if you gave people enough practice and people were motivated, because let's say you're a protein scientist and you really care about this, the tonality and the musicality of it is probably secondary to your ability over time to be like, huh, the hunch is, as I hear this beep, bop, boop, 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 and then now all of a sudden that's kind of reminding me about something else mm-hmm. and you could make some connections perhaps not even really realizing it. So the, the musicality is second, but I guess it would add, increase it. You know what it reminds me of is, who is your friend here who, he was a composer and he took DNA sequences. Yeah, he worked for turn. 23andMe. Yeah, he took DNA, DNA sequences and That's would right. convert them or transpose them as a better term into music. Yeah. I wonder what he's up to. I don't know, I'll have to look him Send up. Send him that paper and get him on the show. 
for sure. Well, that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and joining me this week was... Adam Bristol. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.